Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time podcast. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And this week we're talking about Scarface, Brian De Palma's 1983 gangster film starring Al Pacino, written by Oliver Stone. Who? Ah. But anyway, um, so Andrew, had you seen Scarface before? I had. I had. Um, I had seen it a few times before. I feel like the first time I saw it, it was playing in a, a bar. Is it Five Dame Lane? Where um, they, they were just like playing it. Oh, yeah, in the on, background. Uh, yeah, in the background. It's like, oh, this is normal. Uh, <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> and and I think the two times I had seen it, uh, I had come into it, the first scene being a, a particularly vicious scene. <laughs> Um, Without that, getting too spoilery. No, I, I feel like it might be in the first 15 minutes of the movie. Scarface may have some gratuit, some large sort of heavy violence in yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, this, for- this podcast will be clean. Completely but, and utterly clean. But, but that doesn't mean that you can watch the movie that we're going to be discussing if if you're... Um, in any way squeamish or sensitive. Yeah. I mean, one of the features on this the This podcast is not Scarface. Just to be absolutely clear... Um, there is less chainsaw and swearing in it. Yeah. Um, but we actually one of the features of the Blu-ray is that a, a little F-bomb counter that will count up the number of F-words that are used wow. across the film, which is, yeah. So it's like every time we say, it'll be replaced by, um, or the sound of a chainsaw. We'll figure out, we'll figure yeah, out post. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it is, so it is a very violent, very, very graphic movie. And so I can imagine your first time coming to it at, at Four Dame Lane or wherever would have been quite an experience. You wouldn't have seen it without you would have seen it without the sound, presumably, right? Because Four Dame Lane played music and stuff like that. It's a nightclub, so it would have been on the television. Or oh would yeah, just... it would have, it would have, yeah. It, it, like it, um, here's what we'll do: we'll 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 have something kind of shocking in the in the just with, playing with on no the sound. So. Yeah, well, I mean. I'm going to be honest, I... It's a very visually striking movie. It is. It's very rich. It's got lots of vivid colours. And it looks fantastic in high definition, actually, because we, we just watched it on Blu-ray. And, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I just came off a... Bender. A, a, yeah, a mass a five-hour flight from, from Turkey. I've been up since 2 a.m. in the morning at this point. Yeah. So I am, like, late-stage Al Pacino in this movie without getting into spoilers. And the, um, the, the, the idea was that I come in and save the day. Um, and I'm going to take over things. Um, and because, um, because I'm the partner. Um, but I, I, like I was just... Junior partner. Junior. Um, but I do think that, uh, one of the things that's striking about traveling on a plane is that you have, now you have the sea of multimedia screens in front of you. It's actually more interesting to watch what other people are watching on those little television screens than it is to watch your own because you have no sound. So it's always interesting to watch either movies you've already seen or movies you haven't seen and just see them playing silently. Because it's a wonderful experiment to watch a movie without sound and see how it plays. And I imagine Scarface actually plays reasonably well without sound. Like, it's a very broad... Or in another language. Yeah. I've seen... Um, I saw a Dolph Lundgren movie in... Um, and it was uh, dubbed into, uh, I guess, Magyar or Hungarian or whatever. Um, it was in it was in Budapest. And, and I, I, was, I, I watched an episode of Eeyore... And I watched an entire Dolph Lundgren movie because <laughs> I was waiting for it to, to to use the internet at a hostel, <laughs> where where they have the like one PC that yeah, that somebody yeah using at a time so to rotate through. Well, I mean, it is 
like I think it's a very good way of gauging how good a director's visual storytelling is is to watch a movie without sound and see how much you can follow. Well, a lot of this movie, uh, we we had it turned up um, very loud, very yeah. loud because I couldn't understand. Um, did did turning up the volume help you understand? Not really. There were bits of kind of muffled uh, dialogue, I guess. And heavily accented dialogue, to be absolutely clear. Like, it spoils nothing to say that um, Al Pacino plays the character of Tony Montana in this movie, who is a Cuban exile. But he speaks like absolutely no Cuban has ever spoken in the history of civilization. In fact, when you compare his accent to the other actors in the cast, like, for example, his co-star, uh, Stephen Bauer, who actually, like, had a proper Cuban accent being sort of a, a, an immigrant of Latin American extraction. Like, he actually had a proper accent that he'd studied and that he'd sort of, he'd honed. And that well, he'd... I'd imagine d- d- different immigrants of, of various Latin American extraction would each have different accents. But well, they, uh, they would, but the two characters are meant to be very closely related, and it, it's also the no, fact no, no. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying is, it, it, it like, th- that's not to say that Stephen Bauer has an authentic Cuban or, accent either, or that anyone in this movie has does. I mean, unless we can identify. Okay, well, to be clear, I just want to be clear that you weren't arguing that Al Pacino was particularly uh, close to the mark. Well, we, <laughs> no, no, yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't imagine, I wouldn't imagine anyone talks like that. But um, ever, but like, like, was was it an interesting choice? Yes, it was. Well, it was a very, it's a very stylized film, and I mean, getting back to what we we're saying there about visual storytelling, it is a movie that you could almost adapt as a silent movie and lose absolutely nothing because you can follow a lot of what's happening even when you don't follow the dialogue. Yeah, you can follow either from the the way the camera moves, the body language choices, yeah. The, excessive violence yeah i mean there's a good chance a lot of cuban people are going to hate this movie anyway oh yeah so 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 why attempt to get their uh, <laughs> accent right uh yeah i mean there's, there's going to be a very strong blowback from the the cuban american community also there was a very strong blowback from miami as you noticed that you actually noticed this while we were watching it the film is set primarily uh in miami give or take a short sort of trip to to another area of the states or to to latin america but very little of the film was actually shot in Miami, only certain scenes. There are, there are certain scenes that were very obviously shot in Miami, involving, yeah. say, the strip along the beach. Uh, but most of it was shot in Los Angeles. And the reason for that was Miami did not want to be involved in any in any way, shape or form with the movie as it was produced. Yeah. They did not see it as a massive endorsement or advertisement for their city or community. Huh. Surprisingly. Yeah, we want people to go to Miami because they're, you know, uh, vain or old. Not, not, not because they want cocaine. Um, <laughs> or to set up an international cartel to smuggle cocaine. Yeah, uh, a lot of the uh, shots l- later in the movie... Uh, there's like a uh, there's a, a fun- montage. There's a fantastic eighties montage. Yeah, um, set to the most eighties power tune ever. Yeah, which by the way is both the theme of the movie, like voiced in lyrical form over a synthesizer. It's amazing. It is it is like one of the high points of eighties cinemas. I mean, like completely unironically, like it is the embodiment of the film. Yeah, I think this movie meant it totally unironically as well. They're, they're, and it's nice actually to to watch a movie that if it were to come out now would be perhaps viewed a little naff in some ways but 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 that it within the context of the 80s of the 80s this is perfectly kind of <laughs> and 
And if you're going to do that these days, you have to kind of like do it with a bit of a winking nod or yeah, a winking like nod. The, yeah, the, like the 21 Jump Street or so. There's right. Aware element yeah. of it. Like when you're adapting Baywatch, you don't adapt it straight. You pretend that it's a spoof of this ridiculous concept that was actually taken seriously in the 90s, for example. Right. You couldn't do that today with this. Um, and I mean, like you could argue the same thing is true of, say, Miami Vice, which is another very 80s piece of, of sort of drug drama set against the backdrop of 80s Miami yeah and like one of the issues that people had with the film adaptation which I'm actually quite fond of is that it was far too um serious was that it was it took itself at face value which I quite liked about it but I think part of the reason the audience didn't respond to it was because they expected it to be broader and sort of ironic and sort of knowing and winking when in fact it was very much a very straightforward gritty sort of down-to-earth take the premise entirely seriously movie yeah well you're a big michael mann man i am indeed i'm i am a man man so to speak but um i mean and let's let's talk specifically you're a man you're a man yes you am yes, yes. you am let's talk specifically about this film in particular because you said there that like if it were released today, it would be considered gaudy, tacky, very broad, very sort of uh, generic and very over the top. Or, like like it it would be, it would have to it would it would have to be very um, pastiche. And you think about movies recently, like for example, uh, American Hustle seems like a movie that was written and directed by Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> Oh yeah, because the version of the seventies was so exaggerated. Yeah, so and, goofy and yeah, it's um, ridiculous. Um, yeah, if I, I think if you were do, if you were doing it now, yes, you, you, you could do, you could do it really seriously. But you wouldn't be able to do it so broadly and so boldly. I think even if yeah. you're doing it seriously, you'd have to do it gritty. Yeah. You'd have to do it sort of like you couldn't have a central performance like Al Pacino, where he seems to be cramming the scenery into his mouth or up his nose. Well, I, I, th- I think Al Pacino's fantastic. I do. I, yeah. I really do. I mean, we'll, we'll talk a bit about this in a moment, but one of the issues when it was released, because it's... it's a controversial view. <laughs> I yeah, think Al Pacino's Pacino, fantastic. Yeah. Um, the 250, we're stating the things that other podcasts dare not. But yeah. one of the things about this is that this was another example of the films. We had a couple of them on the podcast now, particularly from the 80s. The early 80s seemed to be rife with these films that were released dropped dead on arrival and then were sort of like critically reevaluated and reassessed in the decades that followed. Yeah. And this was one of those where it was released, it uh, bombed at the box office. It didn't even place in, say, the top 15 grocers of 1983. Um, and by the way, that that's not people who stack store shelves, um, to be clear, when just when I pronounce grocers there. Um, but also it, uh, it generated some controversy among critics who also thought it was too gaudy, and too bold and too sort of uh, too outlandish, okay. too cartoonish. So like we're a, we're we're kind of looking back at this and thinking, oh, it it kind of fit in then, and how quaint, but no. it really um, it didn't. Yeah, in the context of the eighties, there was a lot of like a lot of people saw it as a live action cartoon. Yeah, and it kind of is, to be honest. Like I mean, and I love it. I really really like it. I like it a lot. But I think there is an element of it is. I think the the adjective that's been used a lot by the cast and crew is Brechtian. Um, and in fact, actually, it's like Al Pacino and, and Andrew is sort of squinting here. Oh, don't worry. Darren's going full Freudian in a moment. Are you finished? Uh, Can I leave now? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was Al Pacino was first inspired to make this movie when he was rehearsing for uh, Breck's The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, which was uh, written in like 1939, 1940 about the rise of Hitler. But it was transposed into Chicago, uh, into sort of gangland in America. 
And while he was researching that, he discovered that Brecht had an interest in American gangster films, in particularly the 1932 Howard Hawks Scarface film. And so Pacino sort of latched onto that and said, well, I want to see this movie. And when he did eventually get to see this movie, years after he'd done the play, he was like, you know what we should do? We should remake this. And we should sort of do it in a Brechtian style. And in fact, that was one of the big conflicts. He got his producer, um, who is uh, Bergman. What are you talking about, Tony? (laughs) You can't remake Scarface. (laughs) Where are we going to get that kind of money? But uh, he talked to his his, his agent, who is the producer who's listed first in the credits here. And they actually cycled through a series of directors trying to find the right fit for the project. Um, One of the first directors they wanted to hire was uh, Sidney Lumet, who had worked with Pacino on Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico. And of course, those are very relatively grounded films. Like they're very sort of gritty. They're very sort of like engaged with social issues. They're very sort of like angsty, serious drama films, like Oscar caliber stuff. And Lumet was the one who came up with the idea of setting uh, the movie against the backdrop of the Cuban immigrants to the US. And he actually wanted to push it further politically. He wanted to tie it further into this idea of like the Reagan administration's involvement in the drug trade that you see a little bit in the finished project, but isn't isn't a much a central theme. And sort of Pacino was like, no, 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 that's not what I want to do. I want to do something sort of bold and operatic. And I want to do something sort of striking and something that will jump out at you. I don't want Tony Montana to be, and he's, he's come out in interviews and said this, he doesn't want Tony Montana to be a three-dimensional character. He wants it to be more two-dimensional and larger than life. And that's where Brian De Palma came in. And De Palma basically said, okay, look, what we're going to do is we're going to make this operatic. We're going to make it sort of broad. We're going to make it bigger and bolder and livelier. And apparently one of Oliver Stone's big issues with the finished film, having written the screenplay, was that he felt that it was too cartoonish. He wanted to make a serious political film because, again, he's Oliver Stone. Um, And this is the stuff that interests him. And when he looked at the finished project, he was like, okay, well, some of the stuff I raised is still in there. But on the other hand, you have these really long talky scenes where characters look like they're making out with one another despite standing a foot apart. You know, you have this sort of like larger than life element that sort of creeps into the film and just never lets go, which isn't quite what I had in mind when I wrote the screenplay. And I think that that's one of the things that I really, really like about the film is that it is so cartoonish and broad and and almost like goofy and almost like as you point out if you did it today it would be self-parody but i think in the context of like how we were how we imagine the 80s have been and i mean how miami is where it's larger than life i mean i i guess it depends on who you put in it i i think i think i think al pacino kind of sustains a lot a a, a lot of this movie and it's two hours and 50 minutes long like it's a long movie that's a lot of sustain yeah i feel like if if you if if you put someone in uh someone else in there it it, it's 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 very it's very important who you cast I, i like i haven't seen it but there was recently, um, what's it called? Ride by Night? Or... Oh, with Ben Affleck. Live yes, by night. Live by Night. Um, with Ben Affleck. And I can't imagine... Is that a reference to a sex addiction? No. No. But, <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, I didn't, um, it wasn't intended. Um, anyway, so Live by Night. Live by Night, yeah. Where... Written, directed and starring Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, yeah. Where, where maybe take Ben Affleck out of that movie and... <laughs> it would be a better movie. I don't know. I, I think its problems were bigger than that. Its problems were that it took itself far too seriously and it wanted to be like a Goodfellas-style epic. And I think that if you, you, your problem if you're doing a crime epic and you want to be a Goodfellas-style epic is that you're never going to out Goodfellas Goodfellas. 
Yeah, but I think also you need you need you need a certain level of gravitas if you're going to take yourself that seriously, and I think that's something that Al Pacino gives yeah. that that not every actor can. All right, so let's get to the meat and the matter before we get into the spoiler zone. Do you think that this movie belongs on the list of the top two hundred fifty movies of all time? I guess for like cultural relevance and and a kind of. And <laughs> A, a, a common answer that I've given lately is that I probably wouldn't put it on my top 250, but that's it, it's a very personal thing. I have no problem with it being on, on, on the list. And as you say, culturally, it's had a huge impact. I think we talk about Grand Theft Auto a lot. Yeah. On, on, oh, we're going to talk about it a lot more, I suspect, on this yeah. podcast. But yeah, there, there's, there's, there, there's all of these kind of... Um... There were these moments when we were watching Scarface where it looked... It didn't seem like the movie was set in Miami so much as a live-action adaptation of a video game that would take place 15 or 20 years later. Yeah. Uh, which is remarkable, like, as far as cultural impact goes. And we were going to talk a little bit about it later on. In fact, I kind of want to talk about it a little bit. Like... I am perhaps more skeptical of the film than you are. And this is when, this is when I said earlier, I'm like late stage Al Pacino in this movie at this stage. I've been, you know, I've been up since 2am. I'm a little cranky. Um, I'm probably going to be a little incoherent. Um, I'm a little grumpy. But one of the things about, and this is something we talked about in the podcast before, is do you hold a film to account for its legacy and its reputation and its fans? So when you're judging a film, when you're considering whether or not a film deserves to be on the 250, do you take into assessment like the way that it has shaped culture, the way that the footprint that it's left? Like, for example, you talked about uh, Terminator 2. Right. The way that it defined a certain type of blockbuster, which you're not yeah. particularly fond. And I talked about, say, Cinema Paradiso, which defined a certain type of foreign film, of which I'm not particularly fond. Like, in the case of Scarface, one of my big issues with it is that it has a certain kind of fan base and it's one of those things where do you hold a film or a film's fans against it where there's a certain sense that there's a large volume of people or a large sort of vocal segment of, of people out there who maybe don't see the film who, who embrace the film as sort of like a something to be appreciated as sort of a would, uh, rather ironically or unironically, I'm trying to find the right word, but the, the culture where it leads to where you see Scarface posters uh, on dorms, dorm walls everywhere. Right. You know, where you have that joke at the start of Trainwreck where Amy Schumer, Amy Schumer wakes up and says, oh dear God, please don't let there be a Scarface poster on the wall. Where you have this sort of, this reputation that has been built up around the film over the years where it's become like this well, status symbol. And is this a, a character that people want to live vicariously through? Yeah, is it a, sort of kind of a status symbol? Or... Yeah, it is. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of what Emily uh, Nussbaum talked about when she was talking about uh, Breaking Bad, which is a show that's obviously been hugely inspired by this. The idea of, I don't know, a bad fan, as in inverted commas, but the idea of a... Oh, I don't, I don't, I, no. I don't buy into any of that... Well, Fight Club would be another example of a movie on a list where I'm. No, I, okay. I, I, no, I don't think you can you can judge a movie for the like the, those those people were that way before the movie. They, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, like, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that like and and and, and is for... there? I mean, I mean, there's there's definitely there's definitely a lot of the movie where um, you're encouraged to. Like Wall Street, I guess where where oh, Wolf of Wall Street, I assume is it? No, Wall Street. Oh, the, oh sorry, um, no, you're 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 encouraged to. Oh, 
Well, like every crime film, to be honest. Yeah. Sort of lured into the the appeal. Like, you have to understand why this lifestyle would appeal to somebody. Yeah, but it's also a kind of uh, um, a morality tale. But, like, it's a a kind of a Shakespearean tragedy, sort of. Um, I like this. We're throwing out words like Shakespearean and Brechtian in terms of... I don't see how this is Brechtian, but I, 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 maybe I don't understand um, uh, that term as well as as well as you. I, I, well, I, Al Pacino. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I would have kind of associated Brecht with the play ending, and then there being a discussion with the audience about yeah. um, well, yeah, about yeah, the more, themes and. It's more the self awareness aspect of it. I think that that sort of Pacino and De Palmer sort of make that association through. But we'll probably talk about that a bit more in the spoiler zone. But I mean, there's also the fact that I'm I, like, this is something again. This is one of those things where I, I'm wary of the movie. I thought it was more functionalist than Brechtian. To be entirely honest, thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's um, it's systematic portrayal of the dichotomy between the establishment and. Um, that uh, I'm just going to stop. Um, but there is also the fact that it's it's one of the two departments. Just to films. be clear, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Go it's on. just randomly throwing nouns. Yeah, out. yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think there is an element of... I, Being honest, as, as a film fan, I'm always wary of Brian De Palma. Like, De Palma is a director who has produced several films that are better than most directors will produce in their filmography. So, for example, Blowout, this film, this film is better than most directors will ever produce. Um, obviously, other films like, for example, The Untouchables, which is also on the list. Um, you know, various other sort of films that he's done that are... Sorry, Carrie uh, is, is another example of those sort of films that he's done that are absolutely, fantastically amazing and everybody should watch and, like, are better than most directors will produce in their lifetimes, in their full filmographies. But there's a weird strand of film criticism that's latched on to this idea of De Palma as a major creative force, as one of the five major directors of the 70s. And this is one of those things where when you talk about, so for the, the big sort of the five po- young pups of the 70s are... Like Peckinpah? Uh, no, they're, they're sort of, they're Spielberg. Scorsese. Spielberg, Lucas Scorsese, Coppola, and De Palma is generally considered to be the fifth of those. And you have this sort of like within film critic circles, there's a tendency, and it, we joked about this on the podcast before when we talked about you know, well, who's your who's your favorite silent movie actor? Is it uh, is it Buster Keaton or is it Charlie Chaplin? And there's always somebody who says Harold Lloyd. Oasis or Blur. Yeah, and, uh, and pulp. So, yeah, and somebody will say pulp. Like there's an element of that to discussions of De Palma that sort of strikes me. Where like De Palma's a great director, but I'm not entirely sure that he's ever quite deserved the level of appreciation or or fame that he seems to. I'm always wary of bringing up De Palma because when you bring up De Palma, there will always be a staunch defender who will. There's always sort of a culture of he's he's a marvelous director, and if you don't appreciate him as such, if you don't see him as one of the greatest directors working in cinema, and one of the most consistent and bold visionaries working in cinema, that you don't get his work, that you don't understand it, and that sort of in some ways, again, it, it's it's like the association with the fandom with Scarface. It, it maybe puts me at a distance from it, and and then on well, top, I mean, you're perhaps moving in in certain circles where um people have I mean, those sort of discussions yeah yeah i mean, I mean it does, no one's going to get you you you'll, you might encounter people in 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 the world who who'll who'll disagree with you on, on yeah but but like it's it's not 
it's not like you're like it's not like it actually matters no no like people are like oh what you you thought you thought um you thought uh interstellar was 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 better than one space Odyssey. right um how how could you possibly think that yeah you must be crazy and it's like oh i think and it's like there there's there it's it's not it's not a big deal if 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 you don't if you don't like brian de palma people people in these kind of discussions make make out that it is and and i'll make out that it is in in these kind of discussions as well because you have these kind of but it, it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's like a a significant, um, I guess... Um... And by the way, to, to signal the direction that this discussion is going, I really like Scarface. I like Scarface a lot. I right. enjoy it a great deal. This is going to be another Cinema Paradiso type situation where Darren really likes a film, has some reservations about it, though. So, for example, like, if you're going to say, should this movie be on the 250, my gut feeling is going to lean towards no, and that's not because it's a bad film, because, oh my god, it's not one of the best 250 movies ever made. But also, it's more that, like, the 250 is saturated with a lot of these gangster epic crime films. And there's a sense that, like, if you're competing for space on the list, like, Scarface is competing, like, is it the best Al Pacino film? And it's very close, but I would argue it's not. I would argue, yeah, is it the best De Palma film? It's very close, but it's not. This... Is it the best gangster film? It, it Like, Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Goodfellas, you know, even Casino. Like, I mean, doesn't measure uh, up to those. I'd probably put this between Goodfellas and Casino. Okay. As as in, like, cas- Casino for me was... Yeah, I guess we're not talking about casino, casino, but but yeah, I'd... I'd... I don't know. I I mean, there there there's there there's plenty of there's plenty of bad gangster movies. There are. There's. But a, I I, th- yeah. I think there's something kind of enjoyable about any gangster movie, even even a bad one, because it, it's 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 this idea of 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 breaking all of society's rules of living yeah. inside, sort of like of proving your independence of sort of this primal state of man almost this obscene yeah. state there's there's a sense there there's an extent to which certain people can feel i shouldn't be i shouldn't be living down here like um like an animal i should i should be on top of the heap yeah exactly the yeah. world is yours Andrew. i should just grab what it, what it, what it, what, what i, I feel what, is rightfully yeah. owed to me yeah, and so, that the world belongs to the strong and the powerful and those who are willing to reach yeah. beyond this sort of Nietzschean quality. Would yeah, people would like um, vision. Yeah, balls. And, yeah, cojones, um, and that sort of thing. Like yeah, I, I I can see the appeal of crime films, and I think that there are a lot of really good ones. I'm just like the my big issue with Scarface, and the reason that while I love it and I like it a lot, I think it's fantastic. I think it's vivid. I think it's rich. I think it's colorful. I think it's got a fantastic central performance. I think it's great, wonderfully directed. I think it's actually got a pretty good script, despite the fact that... It's got a great score. Yeah, fantastic score. It's got a wonderful sense of atmosphere. It's a perfect piece of texture of, like, the early 80s, despite the fact that a lot of critics at the time rejected it. Has in, a lot in common with a lot of 80s movies as well. I guess we'll we'll talk about it in the spoiler zone. Yeah, but it, it sort of, it did, and you're entirely right when you said, does it belong to the 250 because it has such a big cultural footprint? And that is that is sort of what would edge it for me. That would sort of, would sort of push it towards I mean, being the list. nothing like, belongs on the 250 yeah. or has a right to be. It, yeah. It's just people like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and yeah. specifically, a certain kind of 
demographics like this movie that are that are, that going are to vote um, on the 250. yeah that are disproportionately represented on yeah. that, and, that. Um, yeah and so i mean if if we were if i were culling the list or trying to create a sort of a more representative list more perfect society or whatever um if i were like a communist in this movie as as uh as Tony points out repeatedly, trying Julian. to tell, tell people what to do. Yeah. Um, sorry, that is an awful. That is like I know Tony has an awful Cuban accent, but that is an awful Tony Cuban accent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this idea of like telling people what to do, I would probably Scarface would not make the cut for me. But you it could is be, a great you, film. You could be t- Tony's accent coach. And it's like, <laughs> tell people what to do. Yeah. Tell people what to do. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Just, just, just improvise around it. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I would recommend watching it. I think it's a fantastic visual treat. Would it be on my 250? No. Would I, would I put it on the 250? Would I include it on the list? It will be on my list of candidates. I'm not sure it would make the final cut, if only because I feel like there's enough crime films on there. There's enough Al Pacino films on there. There should be more Brian De Palma films on there. Uh, that are not this one, but uh, I feel I feel like we should we should take. Um, it feels like an exercise to take the two fifty as like a pack of cards and try and put them in order, yeah. and then have ones that you're taking out, yeah. um, like when they get to the bottom and replacing with with, with, with other films. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how many movies do? Uh, um, based on criteria, so can you yeah. swap ten out? Yeah, and you have to keep the director. Is it like okay, you get one Brian De Palma film, or you get five crime films, allocate them appropriately? Yeah, you 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 only get ten Christopher Nolan movies. That's the maximum, uh, because there are ten Christopher Nolan. <laughs> films. To be fair, there are two Christopher Nolan films not currently on the list. Oh god, work on that now, IMDb voters. Um, somewhere Brian De Palma is doing angrily because there are only two Brian De Palma films currently on the list. But anyway, with that in mind, then we might segue gently into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone? So, Andrew. Spoiler zone. Um, I like that. Was, was that Tony or Robert Loggia? I don't know. It's like they had a child. And he welcomed you to the spoiler zone. Yeah, they had a child uh, with um, a fully developed El, speaking El, voice. El, Elvira had a, had a child that seemed seemed to have DNA from from both parents. Yeah, well, her womb is polluted, Andrew. It's polluted. Um. So yes, Andrew, what was Scarface about for you? So it was in the uh, grand history of eighties movies. It has that whole Reaganism thing, and it, it they it's very much an Oliver Stone movie. Yes, because he he's he's great at having this ambivalent attitude towards capitalism, where he's both celebrating it and also um, kind of uh, pointing out all its flaws and showing its 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 um, logical kind of progression and conclusion oliver stone is as far as i understand from from listening to him speak he's not a communist or a socialist he sees the 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 great kind of he sees wall street as like this marketplace and 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 there being a certain kind of nobility about it that was taken out and corrupted and 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 he sees he sees the capitalist system as something that could be like a force for good or at least for enrichment of a society. Yeah. But that there's that there's all of these centralized forces within it and and, and all of and bend Exactly. And and there's there's and 
his suspicion of governments kind of like come come comes into this as well because Tony's coming from Cuba where 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 it's been led by Fidel Castro and a and a socialist government who've um curtailed people's freedoms. Yeah. Um it so, comes up repeatedly. Tony repeatedly says that he hates communists. Yeah, right? because yeah. they tell you what to do. You're a communist. Huh? How do you like it? They tell you all the time what to do, what to think, what to feel. Do you want to be like a cheap? Like all those other people, man? Yeah. The idea is that capitalism presents an opposite system where you are free to be whatever you want to be. Yeah, and if you work hard, you can you can get anywhere. That's the American dream, and yeah. this is a uh, telling of the the well, American a fundamental dream. immigrant story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the the the, the, uh, the uh, Tony Montana is the Andrew Carnegie of cocaine in <laughs> in 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 this movie because he's he's not. He's not a Rockefeller. He's not coming from um, well. Established. Yeah. yeah. He's building himself from the ground up. Like he literally, he's smuggled over. He spends time in a detention center. He works as a chef. And yeah. He sort of, he works as well. Way he's, a, he's a pot washer. Yeah, sorry. He's a pot washer. He's not even a chef. But he works as a pot washer in like this sort of. Yeah. That, that's the diner. indignity of it. Because I feel like he would kind of, um, if he were, if, if he were the customer facing one, um, you know, um, ta- taking people's money and putting it in the till, and that it would be like, you know, wisecracking. And I like that the Cubano sandwiches would yeah. be the cocaine of eighties yeah. Miami. Exactly. I think I I I think his his uh, compounding his misery is that he's lowest in the chain of On the of, very low of the three people in this operation. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea that there's some sort of parallel version where Tony ends up customer facing and channels all of his sort of aggression yeah. and all of his sort of like drive. It's like, hey, Manny, let me, <laughs> yeah. let me, let me make one of those coffees. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put a love hat in it. Um, <laughs> there's going to be some dodgy accents. First um, you get the Cubano sandwiches, <laughs> then you get the franchise, <laughs> then you get the women. Yeah, the, 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 very dodgy. Very, uh, very dodgy. Again, in my defense, I haven't slept since two a.m. No, no, no. And in 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 your defense, also, um, someone was meant to bring you a breakfast roll and, and didn't. Uh, whoever they are, I'm sure they feel very, very sorry. But you're right. There is this sense of like skepticism about capitalism that runs through um, Scarface. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's this recurring idea where like they they actually have conversations. It's not. It's not a, you described it as a Shakespearean uh, story in some ways, and it is because the characters talk about the themes of the play in a very sort of literal way. Yeah. And that they're, they're not really, there's a sense that this is, as much as this is a crime epic, you could also do it as a stage play with about five characters involved. There's, you know, backstabbing and betrayal, but there's also lots of these meditations and soliloquies in which sort of Tony waxes lyrical, whether something, he's... Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. It's a big pussy. <laughs> Just waiting. There's Sorry. Um, uh, I think you mean that it's a great big chicken just waiting to be plucked. The boulderized version of this film is apparently something to behold. Oh, given wow. Given the sheer level of like profanity on display in this. But yeah. The, the <laughs> it's line, a great big chicken waiting to be plucked. Yeah, this town is a great big chicken waiting to get plucked. Um, I love the idea that Tony is somehow like transformed into like a 1930s sort of. <laughs> but it is because you, you described his accent right his accent um pacino's accent 
the reason that's given at the start of the film, and it's actually one of the first lines of the film, is that he oh, says yes. he learned English from movies that he went to with his American father. Now, you don't know if the father was actually American, but the father was in the picture. And he says that he learned how to speak English from actors like James Cagney. Yeah. Uh, which would... Humphrey also, Bogart. Yeah, which would kind of explain the mannerisms that sort of Pacino has in the movie, where it's sort of like these, this larger-than-life sort of like person who... If he existed in the real world, you would notice immediately. But all the other characters seem to be like, ah, he's he's just a regular immigrant. He's fresh from the banana boat. He's not like a character who escaped from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. No. Frank Frank Lopez uh, learned English from... (laughs) from, Just from watching Robert Loja movies. But... uh, Um, There's there's actually... I, I quite like this sort of recurring theme of, like... There's a sense that the gang or the, the sort of the drug smuggling cartel into which uh, Tony sort of integrates himself and sort of takes over is sort of this weird, almost sort of like immigrant front in that you have like F. Murray Abraham playing a gangster named Omar. Um, right. Which is, is not really, Omar isn't really sort of a Cuban name to, to my understanding. It wouldn't be sort of, it sort of suggests maybe something of Middle Eastern or African sort of Maybe it was blind casting. Maybe it was. I mean, um, oh, well, F. Murray Abraham, Abraham might have might have read for something, and then they really liked him, but but not for that role. And yeah, yeah. and Robert Loggia, for example, um, is is very much um, he's it doesn't it doesn't isn't actually explicitly mentioned, but suggested repeatedly that he's of a Jewish extraction as well, because there were Cuban Jewish immigrants as well. Because he he obviously uses the Yiddish word for pig, but also if you look at the medallions that he wears, one of them is is sort of the Jewish star. As well, so there's this interesting sort of suggestion that the, the these cocaine smugglers, these sort of criminal underlords, are all they're not just Cubans in terms of like how you would perceive Cubans to be, but they are just generally outsiders. Yeah, it, it, they, um, your friend was asked to come back with some Cubans, and they <laughs> opened a box of cigars, and it's like what. There's like um, there's some chorizo in this one, <laughs> yeah. and there's um, some Swiss chocolate. This one appears to be made of Swiss chocolate. Yeah, this one smells like jasmine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on here? But I actually I like that mismatch quality too because it does it underscores that idea that this is fundamentally like a perversion of the American dream. It's the immigrant coming to America and making something of themselves, and that something just happens to be a criminal cartel smuggling cocaine into Miami yeah. in huge quantities. And like all the characters sort of have these conversations about capitalism. Like there's a great conversation where, for example, uh, Tony is like in the jacuzzi ranting and raving high on cocaine. You know what capitalism is? Go. True capitalist if ever I met one. Um, and, you know, and all this sort of banter back and forth between them. So there is a sense the movie, like the movie is not subtle in that regard. No. And it's it's very... And I actually quite admire its lack of subtlety. Like, I admire its brazenness. I admire its sort of its in-your-faceness. It's also a kind of a, a a character study within that of this very kind of... Um, he's he's become angry because he's been... He's always been frustrated at kind of wanting more and wanting things that other people have and then realising that... That uh, it's once, never enough. Yeah, yeah, and and the 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 thing that he was chasing, he realizes, hasn't made him any happier. Like I, I was listening to to Russell Brand talk about um, his addiction to 
drugs and then having a sex addiction as well and then kind of having this addiction to kind of like fame and celebrity and um and and, and then wanting to kind of like um gain something of ego by 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 political acts and 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 doing all of these things to 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 try and kind of fulfill himself and not really kind of um uh finding the answer in any of these avenues and it's this kind of man's search for meaning thing yeah the journey it, it has to be an unconditional purpose as as in he he wants to he wants to have all of these things he wants to have the power and and, and he wants to have the money and then you have the power and then you get the, the women. women exactly and once he has the woman he wants to he wants to 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 marry her and to have kids he wants to legitimize all of this money he has but he has more money than he would ever need for and like it, it just keeps growing and growing and growing yeah. and growing like. so so now i can i can um Build build up all of these um, businesses and um, yeah, he has this Montana set, franchise where it seems yeah. like there's an entire district of of like Rodeo Florida. Drive. Yeah, that's basically given up in to Los like, Angeles. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> on the set. Yeah, or it's it's like Montana Beauty Parlor, Montana Motors, Montana Travel, Montana Investments. Yeah, you kind of wonder how dozy the local law enforcement must be. That it kind of took them as long as it did to cop on. There's something not entirely right with this sudden Montana franchising that's opening up. Don't worry, we've got someone on this. How's he getting on? Um, he he, he was shot dead yeah, in a nightclub. Um, I don't but, know. That was in Lopez Motors. <laughs> yeah, it was actually. Oh yeah, sorry, it was with the with the background and, and that that Lopez Motors is also in. It's it's not GTA Five. I think it's uh, San Andreas. Would not be Vice City. No, it's okay. it's in um it's in San Andreas. The 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 this motors um place styled on um on on that headquarters. Yeah, on Lopez headquarters. I mean, like let's. Well, count... there's 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 also a car place um in uh Vice City, but it, it, the the owner of it is this kind of Mike Tyson oh, okay, uh, sort of character. Well, I mean, like, a lot of Vice City obviously came from this, to the point where I think several of the soundtrack songs are based on it. Obviously, the mansion design and it is based on Tony's mansion. It came from Carlito's Way as well. Yes. Well, yeah. Carlito's Way is sort of like a semi-sequel in that it, it shares none of the characters, but it obviously has the same uh, director, same actor, and same themes. Yeah. And that it's very much... it's. I really like Carlito's Way. I'd argue even Carlito's Way is almost as good as Scarface if you deleted the horrible voiceovers. Have you seen Carlito's Way? I have. It's got this sort of dynamic where you have like I don't I'm I'm I don't know if I hate the the voiceovers in that. Oh, I think they're a bit heavy though. I think they're very obvious in many respects. I think they're sort of like you could do like you could do this movie. This movie works even if you can't follow exactly what the actors are saying with the accents. Like I think that Carlito's way doesn't need the voiceover explaining in great detail like that the character wants out of his life or that you know maybe this Sean Penn character isn't trustworthy. I feel like the movie communicates these things well enough without the voiceover element. Oh, perhaps I, I, I didn't feel I didn't feel him egregious anyway. Um, but I do like that Carlito's way is sort of an inversion of this, in that like Scarface is the story of the young pup coming up and overthrowing the social order, and Carlito's way is sort of that perspective, that from the opposite perspective. Uh, yeah, and I, I I guess I I I kind of preferred Carlito's way um, to this because I think it's a more 
it's 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 a more balanced kind of moral character study where 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 there's more a sense of that conflict in 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 the main character than there is than there is in Scarface. We it's both it's both characters who've 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 just been released from prison yeah. but um carlito wants wants, wants to yeah and wants to avoid going back and um and tony obviously wants to, to yeah he just wants he to t- t- take take what's his yeah. um and like if if anybody gets in his way he'll he'll shoot them basically yeah. or murder them or you know horribly horribly butcher them like I mean there's a great line in it where it's, where Manny basically says look I say be happy with what you got Tony responds with you'll be happy and then in that line that no actor or character in a movie should ever say because they understand the concept of dramatic irony me I want what's coming to me oh well, what's coming to you Tony the world Chico and everything in it like there is this sense that like no matter how much Tony has, it will always he will always want more. There will always be that gaping black hole at the center of himself. Yeah. And there's a sense that none of the things he acquires he wants because he acquires because he particularly wants them. Um like even for example his relationship with Elvira, right? Yeah. His relationship for Elvira doesn't seem particularly motivated by sex, even though they talk about sex a lot. It's not desire it doesn't seem like he desires her because she's particularly attractive. He seems to desire her because she's a status symbol, because she embodies like this idea well, of what I, I I think I think that's a the um a lot of his decision to 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 take over and to, to, to kill Frank and to be this boss is is um inspired by this realization that oh I'm not good enough for her. Okay. I, at least there's that kind of seems to be that sort of subtext in it where 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 he arrives and he sees her for the for the first time and 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 he wants her in, immediately but she she won't give him the time of day because he's he's this small fry and at the same time he's talking to Manny and he's saying oh like in order in order to get these women you need you need the money and and the power but it yeah. feels like that conversation is more driven by the fact that manny wants women and you know sort of tony's perspective well, he is... wants women too and he's talking to manny about getting women and how to do it all right um like the 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 like... it's it, the, the this kind of uh, i guess you could call it a love story is def <laughs> is definitely part of the 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 kind of plotting of this movie where it's not just it's not it's not that he wants to be I don't know. Like, is it like he 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 and 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 they do it they do it like this and I know that the part of it is that Manny is the um the is, yeah where where they're in the um the Cuban sandwich um truck and they're looking across the road and he's like oh uh, yeah you were saying so look at this woman with these great breasts in this pink dress outside this nightclub that's, but that's Manny that's, that's how he that's how he phrase it all right. Manny's like, look at that woman with those great breasts. <laughs> yes, that is exactly how he phrases it. All yeah. right, but he, he <laughs> look at that attractive woman in that very nice dress. Is what is Manny's central point or central thesis? Right. But it's it always like it seems to me like in substance. In substance. <laughs> um, right, and 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 Tony's like, oh yeah, well, you can't just go and get that woman. Look at that guy. He's wearing this big suit and 
like and he, um he's like Manny you have to understand that there's certain <laughs> things that you need to acquire before you can you can have a Get woman to that like level that of, uh, yeah yeah I don't know see I, I when when Tony sits down with Elvira and goes through basically when he decides he's going to off Frank like the meet when he sneaks up to her at the pool and he asks her to make him a drink it seems it doesn't seem like this is a love story it seems more like this is a business arrangement that's being made okay this is story I come from the gutter. I know that. I got no education. But that's okay. I know the street. And I'm making all the right connections. With the right woman, there's no stopping me. I could go right to the top. That's like a Frank Underwood, Underwood from House of Cards deal. That's like, a, you know... For you know, that's the kind of thing that you say if you're looking for a beard, or if you're looking to run for president, and you know that you can't do it unless you're married. Well, that's, that's not like that's I... the subtext for this movie is that is that Tony is uh, secretly gay. Well, actually, <laughs> funny you should mention that. Really? Um, no, not really. But there is this re- weird recurring theme, I think, where Tony's sexual appetites are. Oh yeah. Well, what, are actually, this... what are you yeah, actually? What are you actually want? It's not a, so much Elvira. No, it's not Elvira at all. It's what... the Parker's sister. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, Andrew, for getting there before I, I did. Um, <laughs> in in much more elegant and sort of uh, much more elegant manner. But yeah, Tony's sexual appetites in this movie are weirdly not. And again, I think it's a perfect sort of theme for an eighties movie. They're almost like narcissistic. Like, there's a sense that Tony does not so much want to sleep with women as he wants to sleep with expressions of himself. So, like, in Elvira, I think Tony sees... So a... funny talking about this movie through the kind of prism of... of <laughs> I'm discussing it. It's like, hey, I want to sleep with you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I am... Has it been a year since someone slept with you? <laughs> hey, I like your lovely breasts. <laughs> <laughs> The PG thirteen version yeah. of Scarface. Yeah. Um. It's somehow, <laughs> somehow the dialogue is a bit clumsier. But yeah, there there is that element of like Tony is primarily interested in women who serve as reflections of himself. So there's obviously this weird psychosexual thing, which is a very Brian De Palma thing, to be absolutely clear on this. Where whenever he sees his sister with another woman, all of a sudden <laughs> the, the soundtrack goes full Hitchcock. Yeah. The camera zooms in it's on his amazing. eyes, and you can sort of see the veins almost pulsating on his forehead. He's gonna, he's gonna Montana out. Yeah, he's <laughs> like Montana on. Yeah, it's um, like as if he's ready to rip his shirts off, or he needs to go to the bathroom quickly to deal with something. But there is this sort of heavy psychosexual subtext. And, like, it's made explicit. Again, like everything else in the film. Like, Scarface is not a film that does sort of it's subtlety like, or nuance. Hey! <laughs> At the very end of the film, like, she shows up and says, Oh, by the way, would you like to sleep with me? Um, I, think I think you would like to that. sleep with me. Um, by the way, I have sleep a gun. Sleep with me. Yeah, I have a gun. <laughs> sleep with me now, Tony. Um, and she has a gun and tries to shoot him. And then they go to sleep. And then they all go to sleep. Everybody in the... Uh, in the large compound goes to sleep together. Hey! She's not for you. Yeah, like you have this weird possessive attitude towards her, which is, and the film heavily suggests is sexually motivated. And there's a sense that Tony is on some level, some Freudian level, attracted to his sister. But I think even when you look at, say, Elvira, 
What draws Tony to Elvira? And it's better now because now she's 20. Yeah. And not 15. Um, yeah. Uh, the, this this is weird. It is super weird. But I mean, you, you say that as if like everything else in the movie is perfectly fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> to be absolutely clear. Yeah. Andrew likes his sort of cocaine godfather stories without incest or without implied incest. The, the, or without incestuous tension. The perhaps, whole that's way to describe it. <laughs> the, the the whole thing of Frank Lopez giving the lesson to um to Tony Montana about oh and what other thing? Um, <laughs> never get high on your own supply. Um, um, <laughs> um, it's like um sweat is just um your 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 body getting rid of bits that want to go slow uh frank um the pain is weakness uh, leaving the body yeah this uh cocaine is actually um really accelerating my uh whole process here i feel like i'm gonna fly um yeah it's it's like um um i'm taking over everything frank you should try this cocaine do you know what i should really try cocaine but uh, and i love the fact that like Part of me suspects that, like, obviously Scarface unfolds in, like, this hyper-real sort of soap opera-esque world in which, like, there's this wonderful moment where Manny notices that you know, Tony has a sister and Tony's immediate response <laughs> is not, oh, yes, she's my sister, uh, don't worry, we won't be coming back here, keep your eyes to yourself. Hi! It's, yeah, it's <laughs> practically to smack him out of the car. And, yeah. yeah, sort of, I'm going to, hey! Stay away from Stops just sort of curb stomping him for mentioning the fact that he has a sister and never mentioned it before. <laughs> it's brilliant because the music starts and he's like, "Hi!" <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, but it is—it's enough for you, man. Yeah, there are points where it feels like the movie itself is taking cocaine, which feels wonderfully appropriate. <laughs> yeah, the the the, the scene in. Uh, <laughs> Where he walks into the club and he sees his sister dancing, dancing with, yeah. with, with with some guy and and Manny is talking to him. It's like about this thing in New York. And the camera sort of zooms in on his eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's like um, you can sort of you can see the blood pulsing through his temples. But I mean, there is a sense, even say his attraction to Elvira, right? Right. That that is in some ways a reflection of himself, and that he doesn't so much want to sleep with. Elvira, as much as he may want to be Elvira, because Elvira is a you can bleep every time that she's. I suppose you don't want. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but he he doesn't so much want to sleep with her as he wants to be her. Like Elvira, in many respects, is what Montana wants to be. Like there's this big, strong, recurring theme throughout the movie that Montana is this brash, sort of new, rich, sort of like tasteless tacky sort of he will never have the prestige to which he aspires because he has no taste like he goes and buys a suit before he meets frank lopez and frank lopez is like oh by the way oh don't worry we'll get you a tailor who'll do that properly for example you have like the bits in conversation where he's sitting down with frank and omar where he's very clearly trying to make conversation with them but he can't quite communicate on their level like there's a bit where they sort of talk past him a little bit where it's like oh you know she spends half her life dressing and the other half undressing and then tony's like oh the good thing is you got to catch her halfway in between and there's just an awkward silence where like frank continues his conversation with elvira sort of glossing over that 
Like there's a sense that, he, and even like the the Cadillac that he drives, where Tony thinks the Cadillac is awesome and cool, it's like someone's nightmare. <laughs> yeah, um, which because it has a tiger print inside and it's a big American car, whereas Elvira it's a just Cadillac. Yeah, looks down her nose at it. It's like yeah, it looks like somebody's nightmare. Like Elvira, in many respects, she's from um, she's from Baltimore. Like it's implied right. heavily that she's sort of come from a similar background to Tony, except obviously within the States rather than outside the States and that she's moved to Florida. She's built herself from the ground up, but she's established herself immediately as somebody classy and somebody with taste and somebody with prestige. And that's sort of in some ways, I think what Tony wants to be. The sure way to be classy is to hate everything. Yes. That would seem to be Elvira's sort of primary yeah. character trait. It's like, you know, like if you want to seem superior at, at um, just say, oh, um, what's your favorite? Well, um, uh, what's your favorite De Palma movie? Dad, uh, probably Blowout. Are you serious? What's wrong with you? But it, what what you don't have to do is state your opinion. <laughs> yeah, you're just, just like snipe at somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry, we'll be doing that a lot later <laughs> when, we get to, when we get to talk about Brian De Palma and, and this movie in particular. But there is that element of, like, Elvira perfectly embodies this sort of sense of fitting in that Tony doesn't. Like, there's the great scene in the do- at the restaurant at the end. Or not at the end, but as Tony's sort of reaching his mental breakdown point, where he has this big ranty rave. This in the is after of- realising he's like, he's is, got everything is, this, he- is, this, uh, is this all there is? Yeah, is this what he wants? Is Which, this- yeah. After murdering all these people and smuggling all these drugs, yeah. now is the time you want to ask, is this what I really want? But he's at this really expensive restaurant wearing this really nice suit, which he seems to have shrunken into. Like, it's, it's a really great scene. It's a really great performance from all the three actors involved, uh, from Stephen Bauer, from Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, what do you think of Stephen Bauer in this movie? I quite liked him. I thought he wasn't, like, he's no, he's nowhere near as good as Pacino I, and nowhere near as good as uh, I Pfeiffer. Like, all, all of the kind of, when, when you're establishing this kind of... Um, uh, relationship between him and Tony's sister Gina so you shoot to Stephen looking, looking like a complete <laughs> creepazoid he's like hello <laughs> Oh, you mean? Oh, you mean at the at the at the wedding? At the wedding, yeah. Where it looks like where it looks like he's like, about to do the sticking his hey. tongue out thing. It's like yeah, yeah. By the way, I do that thing. I I totally do that thing. You do? That's the thing that he does. It works. And apparently, according to him. Well, look, he got married to her, didn't he? He did. He did for like a day. Yeah, and then he got murdered by her. I don't think he heard Al. Uh, <laughs> I I don't think he heard Tony when Tony said hi. Um, <laughs> stay away from my sister yeah. yeah i feel like that maybe could have been made clearer i also feel that's like what, that's <laughs> i also feel like maybe they should have telegraphed i i'm i'm f- 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 fortunate enough not I, I don't have a younger sister so so I, i've never had to be protective i have a younger sister um I've been, I've had to be protective, but never that protective. Hey! Yeah, now I've never had to go full Pacino um, in, in this situation. Most I've suggested is that people need to walk away um, very politely, but very yeah. firmly. You put your foot down. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like, yeah, I feel like there was maybe a way for... Um, Not for th- that anyone has to be protective. We're talking yeah. about this in, in very kind of like weird patriarchal paternalistic... Yeah, yeah, patriarchal kind of. sort of terms. Yeah, no, I'm... But I mean, in the same way, our mothers would be protective of us. Right? Yeah, so it's yeah. not a gender thing. It's or just my older brother would have been protective of me. When, I am, when... I am the oldest brother, so I don't have yeah. that. But yeah, I would be protective of my younger brother as well, for example. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you stay away from my younger brother. Oi. Hey. Hey. <laughs> um. 
But there is this sort of, I feel like maybe they could have mentioned that to him a little bit beforehand. Maybe it wasn't best that Tony find out about their wedding or their secret relationship on his own, given that he's a big paranoid cocaine fiend who's prone to make irrational decisions. Hey, f- f- um, you, you, you call him a cocaine fiend, um, but he's... He's powered by rage and cocaine by the end of the film. He's like a video game character who's healed by cocaine. Like, that would seem to be, like, who he is by the end of the movie. He's more cocaine than man. Yeah, he... I imagine there's, like... Is is there a certain amount of nutrition in in cocaine? Well, I mean, technically, it comes from a fruit, right? It's a nut. It comes from the coconut, right? No. Okay. Swinging a miss. (laughs) That's okay. Darren Uh, does not know much about the drug trade. But it does That's why Darren doesn't eat coconuts. There we go, coconut leaf. Yes. Boom, got it. Second try around. But so logically, it's a fruit and a vegetable. So it's it's, it's a fruit. It's nutritional, right? It's like, uh, you know, like you take these wheatgrass shots. Presumably it's like that, right? Yeah. Fun fact. You know that uh, as pa- while he was researching this, uh, Oliver Stone was uh, uh, using cocaine. There's a lot of ether. <laughs> that is a fun fact. <laughs> um, while he was researching Scarface, uh, while he was plotting it out and breaking it, he was taking large this amounts of This is a having cocaine. fun fact. This is, yeah. Um, also, fun fact. Research, you yeah, say. Yeah. He decided to quit cocaine while actually writing it in Paris. Okay. So he moved over to Paris because he knew that if he was in Los Angeles, he wouldn't be able to quit cocaine because apparently everybody was doing cocaine in the 80s in, in Los Angeles. So he says, and most other writers, directors, and actors active in the 80s would also say. Like, so he went to Paris I mean, and wrote it. I mean, yeah, most successful podcasters do. do like, Massive amounts. Yeah. Mountains. Our office looks like the uh, looks like the set of Scarface at the moment. Yeah, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make us bad people. We're just around a lot of podcasters and kind of they're all they're doing it. They're passing it around. And I mean, you know, you get to 2 p.m. and all of a sudden everyone's like, whoa, pass the coca leaf. Yeah, yeah. If, if, it's, if it's a crime... To, to take to, an illicit drug to, to take an illicit drug and maybe sell some of it then lock me up and, and throw away the key I'm glad you said it not <laughs> I, I don't believe uh, nerd culture podcasting is rife with cocaine <laughs> after all <laughs> thank you Andrew uh, now that that's out of the way um, but yeah there is this more like Lucasade. yeah more like Lucasade and sugar really yeah um, to the point where yes Andrew arrived and I declared that Yes, podcasting with me this afternoon was going to be like Scarface, but with sugar instead of cocaine. Yeah. Um, we're waiting for the crash to happen. It was a, b- a bag of... of, <laughs> okay. of sugar <laughs> just laid out on the bed. There, um, there was one laid down on the table while we were watching, and he was, like, leaning down to kind of, like... Um, to properly... Yeah, it, yeah. Because, you know? I mean, you don't want to take it all at once. You have to properly sort of pace it. Yeah. And there was at one point where he spilled... <laughs> there was a, a whole lot of, like, all white over powder. The yeah. Um, yeah, we're not actually making that up, um, to be absolutely clear. Sugar. Yeah, sugar indeed. Well, one of the things is that when the movie was released, actually, um, and this is one that the Brian De Palma No one's thing. going to believe that we, we did cocaine anyway. I think it's safe enough. I think it's fairly safe to say that, yes, we are hardly the These coolest. These dorks. These, these nerds over here, these nerdlingers. I feel yeah. like nerdlinger isn't used often enough. But one of the things about the film when it was released is, and one of the things about De Palma as a director, because you were... You sort of you were asking earlier about the Brechtian aspects of the film. Uh, um, yes. And sort of what what like because it's it's not really and I. This I is the part where I was. You like, were raising your eyebrows I, audibly. Are you finished? Yeah. Can I go now? <laughs> <laughs> but I do feel like um, 
I wouldn't use the word Brechtian to describe it, but there is an element of like self-awareness sort of like like drawing the audience's attention to the fact that this is a film basically that it's a narrative rather than it's a sort of a you know that it's it's not a true to life story despite the fact that it's set against the backdrop of like the the riots that really took place in the camps or the the immigration that really took place in 1980 when Castro opened the ports right it may exist against the backdrop of those facts but it it's very much a heightened and very much a, a sort of a cinematic story and it draws the audience's attention to that fact that nothing in the movie is real um, to the sense that like you have yeah, like, obviously the, the Havana Nights backdrop which is, is the establishing shot in Miami itself there's the Oliver th- Oliver Stone sorry there's, 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 there's the Oliver Stoneism of of having the um, kind of Christ like character just like riddled with bullets yes um, <laughs> and falling yes yeah, so. yeah yeah falling with his hands stretched out kind of well you do well you have you have a lot of those like De Palma like I, I joked earlier about De Palma being the weakest of like those big five directors of the contrarian pick. De Palma is a fantastic technical director. Like the movie is fantastically well directed. Like there's a beautiful shot where in the camp when Tony and, and Manny murder this guy to get out of the camp, where the camera sort of follows him as he staggers to the crowd. And then as he falls down, it pulls up and away. And it's a beautiful, beautiful shot. And I mean, there, there's even like... There's some bad blood in this movie. Blood. And by the way, you mean actual bad blood? Yeah, not, not... blood effects. Not okay, because there, there is bad blood between like Lopez and, and Tony, for example, and between Sosa and Tony. Yeah, that I can deal with. Yeah, not, not actual bad. <laughs> I blood. want everyone to get on. Yeah, just I feel. Like I don't mind if people comment. get on. Just when they kill each other, I want the blood to look um, real or convincing. Yeah, like um, we're 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 used to seeing pretty good blood in 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 movies. Um, well, I think these days you get CGI splatter, which is not great. Like a, a lot of movies these days use CGI for blood splatter, and it's unconvincing. No, yeah, you're 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 right, but I I I think there's plenty of movies that um that don't have any CGI, and they do yeah. do 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 get it right. Yeah. It feels, and I think when you said Shakespearean, it feels theatrical in places. Robocop, for example. Yeah, Robocop is actually a great example of, of, sort yeah. of practical special effects. But I mean, I think that this movie has a sort of a theatrical quality where it seems like you can almost see the actors holding the blood packs and squeezing the blood packs in order to get the blood to flow out of their wounds, for example. Yeah, like they, they spend bombs. so much money on set decoration. <laughs> yeah. And on fake cocaine. Yeah. Uh, the market price of fake cocaine went way up. You know that the sales of cocaine have actually plummeted in Miami uh, in the past five or ten years. Oh, no. Yeah, because apparently uh, people are saying that cocaine isn't as safe as it used to be. And they're sort of moving uh, more towards uh, safer or more regulated drugs like uh, prescription. And... Yeah, prescription painkillers, pretty much. Um, not heroin, but opioids. Okay. Uh, like, like uh, yeah, the, there's there's an op- opioid epi- epi- epidemic. How do you say that? Opioid op- epidemic. Yeah. <laughs> opioid epidemic. Yeah, yes. it doesn't really, it, it's hard to sell the seriousness of that catastrophe, and it is a human catastrophe, when it sounds like something a 1930s James Cagney character would say. Yeah. Um, but it does, There, there is a sort of a move away. I found that fascinating to discover that Miami, which had long been considered as the cocaine, one of the cocaine capitals of the States, had recently uh, been moving away from that recreational drug. Apparently, actually, here's, here's a fun fact for you, another fun drug-related movie fact for you is that apparently Scarface led to a skyrocketing in the popularity of cocaine, which was already pretty popular in the early 80s, but apparently after the release of Scarface, it jumped, it became even more popular. Um, apparently Wolf of Wall Street had a similar effect with, uh, what's it, Quatludes? Quaaludes? Quaaludes. Sorry, Quatludes are what you wager on newcomers. But uh, Quaaludes, 
uh, quaaludes became increasingly popular. In fact, you can actually see a Google sp- spike in what are quaaludes. Very difficult to get. That's it. What are quaaludes and how do I get them? Uh, immediately after the release of Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. They, um... But because there's only a finite number of them. I like that this is the drug podcast here. I like that we've sort of our discussion about Scarface has sort of turned into a discussion of drug culture. Yeah, I mean, um, had e- even even if Quaaludes become extremely popular, I mean, where where how is that going to rocket up sales of Quaaludes? Because they're not all of a sudden yeah. just going to be loads of Quaaludes somewhere. There yeah. there aren't any Quaaludes being made. Um, they were like the that that's that's why they became this big shot thing is is because is, they were so elite and so rare and so and because they were discontinued yeah i'm actually there's a there's a picture isn't, the, isn't isn't that the case yeah yep it is uh, and particularly because they are so hard to track down i mean even in wolf of wall street like a plot point is that the characters like manage to find rare cop where you know sort of quaaludes Right, and and then sort of that becomes a bonding experience. It's a birthday thing. It is, yeah. It's it's not a you know everybody goes out in a night out. There's a pitch for you that the the inevitable remake of Scarface, which Universal has been trying to get off the ground for the past eight years, with directors like uh, Pablo Lorraine, the guy who did uh, No and Jackie, for example, or David Ayer, the guy who did Suicide Squad. Um, yeah, Universal's been trying to remake uh, Scarface for quite some time now, owing to the with movie's popularity. Days. Well, I actually would love to see Pablo Lorraine's version. I'd be less keen well, like to see Well, like Jackie them. was good. You, did you see Jackie? Did, is, is, is this the Jackie Onassis movie? Yes, the one with the vivid colours, distinctive visual style, fantastic central performance. You didn't like it? I I, I haven't seen it, but I, I like a, a, a lot of the praise was on you know, things like wardrobe and... yeah. And production design and Natalie Portman. Yeah. But I mean, even the way the camera moves and stuff, it's very vivid, it's very rich. It's kind of like, if you're going to do a remake of Scarface, I would like a director like that to handle it, somebody with a distinctive visual style. Okay. Like, I mean... it's uh, none, none of those movies are really shouting, kind of, um, oh, you should give, give me... Give me a movie about a drug lord Aside from the fact that you, that you mentioned two men, yeah. <laughs> I can't see what, what else qualifies them. Yeah, well, I think David Ayer is quite obvious a candidate because Suicide Squad was a mess, and this seems like a disaster waiting to happen. Um, so it give seems this, like... give Universal are funny ones, aren't they? Yeah, I mean they they have the Fast and Furious franchise and they have the Jurassic Park franchise, so everything else they do doesn't really matter. God. Uh, but yeah, apparently they've been pushing this for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but apparently, luckily enough, it looks like it may never get off the ground, which we should be very, very thankful for. Yeah, I have no problem with people necessarily kind of re remaking kind of the, the, like, um, for example, I liked you know good remakes and bad remakes or yeah. or um or like continuations of a franchise. Like I I liked um I liked the Burton Batman's. I didn't like the Schumacher, Schumacher ones. You like the as, Nolan ones, as, yeah. as, as, as certainly as much. And, and, you don't and, need to have that qualifier. It's okay, <laughs> it's okay not to like the Schumacher yeah, Batman's. Yeah, they 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 weren't for me, but they were kind of like fun in certain ways. And uh, they the but the yeah and 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 I like the Nolan ones. Like and I I can I can rank these kind of remakes and then I didn't like Batman versus Superman very much. But, but I mean, even but, the Apes or whatever that you like it is possible to do. I've good heard remakes. those are really good. They are really great. It is possible to do good remakes of films. Yeah. But I do feel like starting from a position of like this movie is popular, let's remake it and let's 
you know, let's just remake it as a concept rather than give it to somebody and trust them to do whatever the hell they want with it is not a good strategy. Like, I would be much more interested in a Pablo Lorraine remake of Scarface than there's a remake of Scarface coming and we have to find a director. Just go, hey, we're giving it to this guy. Whatever he chooses to do with it, we're going to let him do it and we'll see what happens. How do you imagine these things work? Um, Not like that. Um, well, it, it depends. Warner Brothers will generally do that. Warner Brothers will generally I, trust a director to deliver the yeah. vision of something. I wonder. I wonder if it's kind of like, well, we want we want to take this very popular franchise that's going to make us a lot of money. We need to be very careful that it's good though, because it's not just enough that it makes us money. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, they also need to build a fan base so they can do later films and continue to make money. Like the, when you're oh, there's, been, there's been tons of Transformer movies, and they're generally accepted as bad. And my my, my <laughs> Michael Bay just gets trashed for every single thing he does, but yet like he's, he's still I making suppose. these usually successful movies with 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 like an infinite budget. That's a fair point, but they are uh, yeah, those are yeah. There are also on the other hand cases like say Suicide Squad, mm-hmm. where the move has been like there's been a continuous attempt to damage control on the brand as a result. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't know. I would just... The Emoji movie seem, seems to still be doing super well. Yes. yes um, it is. Despite yeah. the fact it is awful. Yeah. And I, I mean, um, to a certain extent, these things are a matter of opinion, but that was an awful movie. Yeah, that's objectively <laughs> stated. Yeah. We can argue about whether or not Scarface belongs in the top 250 movies of all time. But the Emoji movie is I don't know if film. the Emoji movie belongs in the bottom 100 either. That's not uh, there. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems to be like... I think we were, when we were talking about that movie, it's... Um, Just a visceral response to the concept yeah. of it. I think... Do, do, do people like these 80s movies that are on the list because they deal with the problems of, of Reaganomics... In, in, so you in, mean like Aliens, for example, that we've talked about? Or yeah. Blade Runner, even, for example. Or will be Robocop. Or, yeah, Robocop isn't on the list. <laughs> no, no. But um, even say, like, The Thing is also on there, I would argue, yeah. that has a Reagan subtext. Like, or, or is it just nostalgia? Is it that these things happen to be popular people, when yeah, these people came to like, Did it just come to a point where people were like, okay, we've discussed that in movies, and it doesn't seem to have done anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I guess this is just a reality of life, and it's not just something that's creeping into our world it's happened and it's taken over and let's stop talking about it let's just ignore that <laughs> that all of this um like if, if it it feels now in certain circles that neoliberalism gets uh, d- discussed a lot but i don't know how much it gets actually treated in movies like we yeah. we've we've seen recent movies like um recent action movies and they're, they're they're all they all seem to be fairly shallow and like we we've we've we we've watched John Wick chapter 2 and we've watched um Guardians of the yeah. Galaxy volume 2 and you'd swear there's nothing wrong in the world the way you do get horror movies like get out for example is one that that we talked about the, and you get movies the, like the, that. that's not a one to one comparison this is like Scarface and and movie, movies like Alien and there's these big 80s blockbusters. It's worth noting that most of these big 80s blockbusters failed at the box office. The exception is Aliens, of course, but like Scarface bombed at the box office. Blade Runner bombed at the box office. But, but, um, I, I, the Thing bombed at the box office. No, I... I yeah. 
what 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 I mean more is that these these are um at least in theory yeah these, tentpoles almost, yeah. yeah like they're constructed as films that studios expected to do well yeah people people were um surprised at, at the kind of success of Get Out people were, were were happily surprised at how well it was doing yeah and um um and 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 the kind of audience it got. This was a movie that was always intended to have a big audience, yet it had this very subversive yeah. theme to it. And and you don't really get that in, in these, like, and, and, well, I, I, I don't it, know. I, I mean, carry over from the 70s, the school of, of sort of 70s directors we talked about, and we talked about, say, Chinatown, and we talked about the 400 Blows, where you had this sort of, you know, new age of Hollywood in the 70s, where directors like Coppola were allowed to do whatever the hell they um, wanted. And obviously that, that bond with Heaven's Gate, I think maybe that bled over into the eighties. Maybe you having, still had that freedom. Having watched Get Out as well, I don't know how subversive it actually is. Well, let's not have that discussion. In no, this, no. In this it, podcast, it, but... Yeah, sorry, but but I I I feel like movies movies aren't really kind of um, challenging the status quo. As yeah, much as they were. in the in the in the in the same way as they did. I mean, you talked about um, the Nolan um, Batman movies. Batman movies being. Yeah, I would argue that they are like the great American movies of the first decade of the war on terror. Like, I would argue that they are bold, provocative pieces that explore this idea of the culture of fear and this idea of like fear as a currency, fear as a governing concept, fear as something that holds society together and has become the glue that we accept. And in fact, I would argue that like The Dark Knight Rises is in many ways like a precursor to the populism that we've seen today. And in fact, being set eight years after the events of The Dark Knight, it unfolds in 2016, which well, is th- a very I, nice talk. It, but I, we're going to save that for the podcast where we talk about The Dark Knight It Rises. wasn't meant to be talking about Trump. It was, it was, it was meant to be talking about another... Uh, Republican uh, nominee party. for for um, uh, for president of the United States, whose name now escapes Romney. me, Romney, Mitch Romney. But um, no, it does. It has that sort of. But I, I think that those movies do have things to say, and I think that even say the Planet of the Apes movies uh, that were released recently, which you, you haven't seen, but which do touch on things like this idea of of racial anxiety and racial strife and racial uncertainty, and this idea of like. A natural social order that is being challenged and and sort of like I think that a lot of I, like when when did like and I mean that's... I know I know I know there's a lot of um, intersectional feminism and um, a, 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 a lot of intersectional environmentalism and and all of these all of these different kind of movements um, at the moment. But it seem it seems to be that people have, to a large extent, in my mind, lost track of what seems to me to be to be at the root of 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 a lot of these problems is 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 capitalism run wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, I well, and, and, and I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not a um, socialist. Neither of us are, are socialists, I think, per se. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, and, 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 like I suppose it's not. It's I'm I'm, not, I'm a centrist. I'm a dirty centrist, but uh, um, but yeah, I kind of long for like it's not. I, I I want I want I want our society. I like I like movies to be challenging. In, in, in a way that's not 
necessarily um safe um and i think there 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 seems to be a lot of kind of economic orthodoxies these days that we seem to just accept and that don't get really challenged in the movies i think though the big issue is that the past couple of years uh, and i know this is not a politics podcast but i think the last couple of years have been so far off the proverbial scale culturally speaking and politically speaking that you don't have that sort of groundswell of like it's not like criticizing reaganomics it, it's criticizing populism it's, it's not like criticizing the economic principles underlining like the idea of the, the marketplace or right? underlining the idea of America as a capitalist democracy. It's more like criticizing the idea of like certain interest groups against certain other interest groups because things have gotten so far out of whack that like everything. Like, and I think that that's a reaction that people have when they look at politics at the moment is that everything is crazy in a way that we don't remember them being crazy for quite some time. Like that, uh, you know, Trump Brexit, that sort of stuff is a, is a rejection of a social order that has existed in large part since the end of the Second World War. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, I suppose. And that's what's troubling us. And like yeah. even before that, like the war on terror was a galvanizing force because it was all of a sudden, you know, we weren't concerned about like poverty or balance. That's why the recession, I think, caught us off guard was because we were so committed to this idea of a, a clash of civilizations or a clash of Western liberal democracy, not at the end of history after all. You know, it hadn't emerged triumphant. Oh my God, what does that mean? And what does it mean to be safe and secure? And what does liberty and security and freedom mean? As opposed to like, what are the underlying economic principles of our society? And I think there are movies that do touch on these themes. Like, for example, like Alexander Payne is is quite interested in them in stuff like, say, um, what am I thinking of here? Nebraska... Not Nebraska. What was the one before that? It was but after Sideways. Oh, no, I'm thinking of stuff like um, Up in the Air. I'm actually thinking of Jason Reitman sort of stuff where you do have this sort of like question about how people are treated. But it's not it's not a big it's not as big a theme as it was in the 80s and that it's mostly relegated to sort of smaller films. Up in films. the Air seemed like a sort of uh, like it, it was taking all of those um, features of our society and portraying them in a kind of a quirky okay. um, way like. Oh, isn't it mad that this guy just goes around and fires people? <laughs> yeah, I, I think though. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't exactly as brutal an evisceration as it should have been or could have been. Yeah, but I, I do think that there. Yeah, I think that because it's... we had the war on terror and because we have this now, I think that our focus has been away from stuff like Reaganomics. Like the fact that you called them Reaganomics made them quintessential to Reaganism, which made them quintessential to eighties America. As much as anything involving like Iran Contra, yeah, or as much as anything involving the hostages. Like, like you, you had kind of movies at the time and later um, in in the UK that deal with Thatcherism, like um, Brassed Off, and a lot of the kind of um, Ken Loach kind of yeah. Yeah. Well, Ken Loach is a is a very special filmmaker. He's still making films. He's still like going. Yeah. Yeah. Which is was it? I Daniel Blake, for example, last year. Yeah. Which is a like it's it's an up to date criticism of basically the modern like British welfare system. It's it's gutting. It's it's heart wrenching to watch, and it is sort of righteous and angry in a way that I think you're right. Few films are, and more films should be. Yeah. But it, it, I I suppose Ken Loach is very firmly a political uh, filmmaker. filmmaker. And I guess you could say that Oliver Stone certainly yes. is as well. Yeah. What what I what I'd like to see is 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 more of these kind of like ten ten, ten pole movies ha- having kind of. But I'm I'm sure Stones. there were lo- tons of movies at the time that had no 
political subtext whatsoever and we don't talk about them anymore because they don't really tie to their time yeah well i mean if you want to talk about stone as a political filmmaker it's worth looking like his last couple of films have been films like for example snowden like that's where his political interest lies now w for example that's where his political interest lies now even when he's doing a war on drugs film it's it's not a film like this it's a film like savages and and while it's terrible um, it's it's very much it's not engaged with sort of criticism of American society. It's more this sort of geopolitical mess that exists with America in relation to other countries. Yeah, so it's more like sort of the traffic view of of a kind of drug policing as opposed to the Scarface school of well, this is capitalism. This is American capitalism taken to its extreme. By the way, worth pointing out, and I only noticed it this time around. The sheer you're, abundance. You were recently in Macedonia, weren't you? I was indeed. Do they speak with Irish accents? In Macedonia? As, as, as Oliver Stone. Um, suggested? <laughs> yeah. Um, they speak with more convincing Irish accents than I do, um, to be honest. Okay. But no, so, the, so, so Oliver Stone might have been onto something with Alexander. Then. Um, no, but they speak. They actually speak very good English over there. Um, I actually went to see a movie over there, uh, which we may or may not already have talked about on the podcast. Um, but I was able to attend the cinema and see the movie in perfect English. Uh, it was it was amazing. It was actually really, really cool. Um, but it it is... Like, one of the things I noticed this time watching um, watching this movie, watching Scarface, was the sheer abundance of pictures of US presidents. Yeah, there were tons. Yeah, there's like, at the start of the immigration office... There's a few Jimmy Carter's. Yeah, and it seems like they get progressively bigger as well, which is a nice touch. Like, in the interrogation room, it's a small picture of Jimmy Carter. And then when they're signing up to get their forms, it's a big picture of Jimmy Carter. But even in um, Robert Loggia, or sorry, Frank Lopez's motor store, he has a little uh, alignment behind his desk of pictures yeah. of the US presidents. Oh, no, he, he, does he have Teddy Kennedy? He, he does have Teddy Kennedy there. Oh, was, has, it, was it Robert? Or, oh, it was Robert I don't. Kennedy. I don't think it was, it was John, it wasn't, anyway. It wasn't John. No. So he does. He has Kennedy. He has Lyndon B. Johnson. For some reason, he has Nixon and hasn't taken him down yet, which is surprising. Uh, but yeah, there's this. And he sort of, also had George W. Bush. Um, somehow, predictably, <laughs> uh, Frank Lopez. Is, you couldn't see it because of where his body was standing, where his body was positioned in the shot. But there is like, yeah. Walter Mondale. Scar- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like non president. We we made the wrong call this time around. <laughs> it turns out, yeah, Bob Dole. That was a poor choice <laughs> on our part. Um, our art department wasn't there. But like one of the things about uh, it is not a subtle movie in any way, shape, or form. And one of the things that when it was... because Sorry, to get back to talking about this being a Brechtian movie and the way that it raised eyebrows and stuff like that. Like, De Palma is traditionally seen as... And this is what I talk about when I say people who don't get De Palma or people who, uh, you know, that sort of the film snobbish attitude of like, oh, well, if you don't like De Palma, you don't understand De Palma. De Palma... And we talked about this when we talked about Park Chan-wok, is that he's one of those directors who is very heavily influenced by Hitchcock. And you can see that in his compositions, in his framing, and even in the psychosexual subtext that he loves so much. He's a, he's a director who's very interested in voyeurism, the act of looking, and in putting the camera in the position, in the audience in the position of the camera. And like, one of the great things about, I would argue, Blowout, is that Blowout is a very clever sort of Hitchcockian film, and that's based around the idea that the audience wants to position themselves as the hero of the film. So it's about a, a sound mic operator who accidentally picks up a conversation on his sound equipment while making a movie that turns out to be vitally important, allows him to become a hero. So like the act of observing and watching allows this character to become a hero like the audience sort of wishes to be. But De Palma, like as an artist, he's talked about again, like Park Chan-wok, his defining cinematic experience was seeing Vertigo in 1958 when he was 18 years old. 
But what he took away from it, according to the documentary De Palma, which is very, very, very worth watching, is that the thing he liked about it wasn't that it was a an intense psychological thriller or that it was well-directed or that it was beautifully framed, although he liked those things a lot. It was that he saw it as a metaphor for movie-making itself. And, like, one of the big recurring sort of trains of approaching De Palma as a filmmaker are that he's a filmmaker who likes to make movies that are fundamentally about movie-making, in that he's a, he's a director who is always cognizant not necessarily invested in the story that he is telling himself, but that he's interested in like the performative aspects or the challenging the audience aspects or the, the confronting the audience as a technique. And many, many critics would see him as a cold filmmaker in, in terms of like, he's more interested in getting those beautiful shots. Like for example, like De Palma has a rake of really, really bad films in his filmography. Like for example, Bonfire of the Vanities, right? Which is an awful film. But it has this beautiful opening tracking shot that follows Bruce Willis as he's walking along and as he changes clothes and as he eats uh, his breakfast. When when was this made? This is in the nineties. Okay. Um, not Breakfast of Champions. That's another awful Bruce Willis film. Um, but the Bonfire of the Vanities. There's lots of awful Bruce Willis uh, Willis movies. I mean, I I wonder how how much can you blame uh, uh, Brian De Palma for that not working. But I mean, like even when De Palma's making movies that are not great, there's always a sheer level of technique and skill involved. And there's a sense that he likes making films that are about films and about cinema. And this element of like fakery and, and sort of performative qualities and about commentating. And one of the outstanding reads on Scarface and one of the sort of ways in which people have interpreted Scarface I don't know how true it is he certainly hasn't endorsed this reading of it but it's been suggested by other people like Martin Scorsese Martin Scorsese apparently told Stephen Bauer after the premiere that he loved the film he thought the film was fantastic but he knew that it was going to get slated and that Hollywood itself would not support the film because he saw it as a very 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 vicious critique of Hollywood from De Palma's perspective like he saw that he understood that a lot of film executives would see themselves reflected in the cocaine-fueled excesses of Tony Montana with the buying the tiger, with the gaudy mansion, with the terrible decorations, with the mistresses, with the, you know, with the, the, the wives that they're kept in a possessive relationship, with the sort of the tension that exists at these fancy diners that nobody really wants to attend. And sort of Scorsese told Bauer that this was a commentary. They saw De Palma making commentary on that. It's also been suggested by some De Palma's biographers that De Palma may even see himself as a character like Tony in Hollywood in relation to other filmmakers like Coppola, like Spielberg, like Scorsese, like Lucas, other other directors in the 70s who went on to greater success, whereas he was always seen as a more visceral, more vicious, more uh, sort of like dirty, gritty, like less prestigious, less respectable sort of child of that movement. And that sort of in that respect, this was his sort of reflection on that because... This movie was released directly after Blowout, which many people, myself included, would argue is De Palma's masterpiece. But it, it, it just critically it bombed. It, it, it didn't make any impression whatsoever. It was not received well critically outside of people like Pauline Kael, who had supported him throughout his career. And it's sort of De Palma was demoralized and he came and he decided to do this big studio film with Pacino. And it, some people have read it as his commentary on the studio system or his sort of a reflection of his sort of anger at the studio system. Like, he famously submitted several cuts of the film to the, the MPAA, got an X cut on it, made some alterations to get the, the OR rating, and then released the X cut in cinemas anyway. He basically shipped the original cut, 
uh, with the or cut, with the or rating, uh, which was a massive violation of the rules, but nobody figured it out until he admitted it later. Uh. What, 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 what would have been removed? Um, yeah, there's, there's a question. When you look at the film, because you have, like, the chainsaw, the chainsaw scene. Because I saw the chainsaw cut. scene, I think, twice before I saw the movie. Yeah. As, as in, like, i seen it, I, I, I saw it in a bar, and then I think I tuned into the movie um, already kind of, like, in a, progress. A, a few minutes in. And I, I, that scene was even worse for me when... I saw it because I thought it was his brother yeah. getting... Um, I like that. It's a, If it's a background extra, it doesn't matter as much. If it's only yeah. a guy who's... He doesn't seem too, too um, bothered by it. He's like, oh, and by the way, I lost my friend. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I want know. you to have this. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, sorry about your friend. <laughs> I do like though that he leverages his friend's death into getting a meeting with Frank Lopez. Yeah, it's like I like the sense that Tony Montana is like seven ways to influence people. Like had a bastard child, and it's like okay, Tony Montana is sort of reading these like eighties self help or self actualization books. It's like remember to leverage your business advantages into meetings with powerful people. For yeah. example, if you saw your brother or a friend chainsawed to death. Feel free to use that to leverage it into a meeting with a higher-ranking member of your organization. If uh, if given the chance to 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 spend time with 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 a higher executive, um, uh, you can you can you can use this opportunity to 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 set yourself apart and keep them on ice for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, for several days at a time if necessary. But like there is there is this um, yeah there is this sort of. Uh, wonderful sense of like Tony as this pure unreleased sort of like you get the sense that if he'd worked in advertising he would have been very very successful or if he'd worked in sales in a legitimate organization he would have been very very effective like you get the sense he's almost like Gordon Gecko in a sense that he is this sort of unrestrained capitalist sort of like consuming force yeah he doesn't feel like he belongs though no I I feel like um Gordon Gecko has a smaller sense of he has that kind of oh this this rich uh, old money English guy um, I'll show him but he he sees himself very much as a representative of Wall yeah. Street rather than an outsider trying to break in whereas Tony very much sees yeah. himself as an I think outsider. It's, 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 I guess Charlie Sheen is more the kind of Tony Montana <laughs> in that movie yeah except he has a happy ending. By the way, out of curiosity, right, because this is one of the things that sort of took me out in the movie, is the bit at the end where Tony's, or not at the end, but towards the end, where Tony suddenly decides, not suddenly decides, because he hasn't hurt women or children to that point in the film, but where it becomes like a red line issue for him when he's dealing with the cartel down in, in Colombia, where they decide they want to kill Sorry, in Bolivia, where he decides he's going to kill this guy who's going to testify in front of the UN. And Tony's all on board for that until the guy's wife... He's not... Him. By the way, on board for it. He's in that room and he's thinking, all these, uh, all these cockroach um, politicians and like I, I, your your friends are, from Washington. Yeah, these are the people he hates, and he's like, right, okay, <laughs> all right, and you want me to do this, okay. So, <laughs> and the, the the thing that took me out of it, uh, what what wasn't that it's it's that tony's role in this um plot 
is to speak English and drive a car. <laughs> Which is not exactly what you want from the no. man who's running your organization in Miami. You could yeah, it. it's Pretty like... Somebody yeah. else in the organization must be able to speak English and drive, right? Oh, but maybe they wouldn't also speak Spanish. <laughs> Where are you going to find a person who who speaks the second and third most spoken languages in the world and, and can the drive? Yeah, these are tough questions. But I did find it a bit odd that this became such a weird red line issue for Tony. In fact, it, it almost seemed like the movie was suggesting that Tony like had a moral compass at the last minute. It was very weird. Well, yeah, I guess he hadn't killed any women or children. Uh, yeah, no, it's not an inconsistency. I'm not suggesting like it's an inconsistency. It just seems strange when you look at it in the context of everything else in the film. Because he's fairly, like, he's fairly vicious and bloodthirsty and, and sort of like, I suppose those are in service of his own ends. Rather yeah, than... I suppose, I suppose he, he could have, he could have just, okay, 10 yards, 10 yards. Okay, you gotta blow him up now. Okay, they're done. Let's go back. <laughs> and And then it's like, Everything seems to be fine now. Yeah. End of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> why, did, why did he suddenly sound like Arnie? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it would have been a much better movie. Had if, they cast uh, if they if 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 uh, Tony had just been like, no, I yeah, let's let's necessity. Like, let's whatever. blow up this car with the <laughs> with, the, with children. the women and children. The adorable children. That doesn't by the bother way. me. I love um, the adorable children in the back seat. Children, and can we do- look out the back window in case anybody's jailing us and thinking about killing you? Maybe play <laughs> pat a cake or something? And it's uh, like, okay, now I solve your problem. You solve my problem. Neither of us have any problems. We go home. <laughs> yeah, problem solved. Um, yeah. No, but I understand the like storytelling necessity for the movie to end in bloodshed <laughs> and to illustrate that Tony, like Tony's cocaine addiction and his pursuit of more, have led him to a place where what he if, dies if, in the shadow of like a global What if movie. the movie had ended with with <laughs> Tony like leaving prison after three years? How would you feel about a, a <laughs> short parole, prison yeah, term? If he got parole for good behavior, like following a short montage in which various character witnesses testify that. Tony was actually a good person. How, how would that sit with you? Yeah, Dar- Darren does not seem to believe in redemption um, or, or penal justice. No, well, I mean, to be honest, though, you would have still had the scene where his sister comes in and tries to shoot him, logically, in storytelling. It just seems a very strange red line to draw. Like, there are any number of ways you could have generated conflict between him and the cartel, and it seems like this particular way was chosen because it makes Tony sympathetic. Well, I, I believe there was there was a... There was part of a parallel true story in this as well, I think, with okay. Su- with Sousa representing ah. an actual uh, existing. Um, I did not know this. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I, um, and and I, like I, I'm I'm not sure of all the details, but this kind of speech at the UN being this kind of um, big moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it is something and, that actually happened. So uh, something along these lines where where there was oh. like a journalist or a whistleblower or a, a kind of like deep throat kind of um, yeah yeah where 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 this was um where where this was based um some somewhat on reality. That's pretty cool. So I know that. one uh, suspects that's the influence of Oliver Stone on the script. Yeah. yeah, but but having having the um, having it be a thing where um, okay, so so Tony um, Tony kills him. people, so he'll be sent to New York to help out with that. But uh, New how, York, which by the way looks very little like New York by night. Yeah, and, yeah, and looks very much like a bunch of characters in a car with a rotating green screen in the background yeah. by day. 
the um, um, I know. It just, it just in it, fairness, it, like all the daytime stuff was in New York. Yeah, well, it sort of it it just it, it sort of reminds me of one it's of the. It's funny problems. how there's nowhere else looks like New York. They tried to do it in Toronto, but they they yeah yeah. Sorry. And then they've also like they tried to do it in Atlanta as well for the Spider-Man movie, and they did it in um, various other places as well over these. Cleveland, I think, has tried to double for New York on several occasions recently. Right, but it's very hard. It is very hard to do right, and I think you get a texture when you, when you do it right and when you use actual New York for it. But no, it's just this refusal to kill children reminds me of like one of my issues with The Godfather, which is a great film, but it has a similar sort of thing where we don't sell drugs to school children. Uh, we don't sell drugs. That's the line that we draw here. Okay. And it's well, sort of Tony like, hasn't drawn that line. You no, know, Tony has moved a little bit further than that line. The line has shifted gradually. Yeah. It's a slippery slope, mostly of cocaine. Protection. Um, Certain types of prostitution. Yeah. But never drugs. Yeah. Like, it, it's an arbitrary line in the sand that seems yeah. to exist to say this character is maybe not the worst human being imaginable. They're pretty bad, but they're not the worst human We're being We're guys imaginable. with guns. Yeah. We kill other guys with guns, but never women and never kids. Because generally, they don't have guns. Because audiences don't well, respond well to that. It's um, like, die. Don't you realize the kids are just little adults? <laughs> I did. I did like that scene where he was explaining the concept of children to Elvira, and he's like, "You like kids?" And she's like, "What?" And he's like, "You know, kids." And he does a little gesture like a short person. <laughs> and Elvira's just there. He either means children or dwarves. Oh, Ewoks. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's exactly what you mean. But I do. I do. I don't know that that sort of just struck me watching the movie was this sense of like, oh well, at least the cocaine fueled bad man wouldn't hurt children. Yeah, so, I, I mean... Um, although it, do, it does add a nice ironic twist that that is what gets him killed in the end. Like that the one half-decent thing that he does over the course of the entire two-hour and 50-minute film is what gets him done in the end. Yeah. If he just killed those kids... It's not him being really rapey to uh, Elvira. Um, like, for Frank... Frank Frank um, fails to to <laughs> to get him killed. There's the guys who are like, should we kill him now? No, I Wait, wanna I want to see where this. Going. Yeah, that was a hilarious scene where they're like, oh, hold on. John Munch is on stage connecting yeah. this to the Law and Order universe. Yeah, working undercover to infiltrate the uh, cartels down in uh, Miami. And then all of a sudden, this guy appears on set. And Andrew turns to me when this guy with the big bubble stomach and the big this is what got it an X rating. Yeah, the front, the Frank side bottom head. And Andrew says, "Darren, did you stick on the director's cut again?" <laughs> yeah. What is this movie? What is this? The this guy in the big bobble head um, kind of paper mache. Like, I do not for, recall this. And the scene goes uh, on for a solid. Like, yeah, it's not like and there's all these lights shining on. A, and yeah, the, it's two or three minutes of him dancing around and interacting with other people while the camera sort of pans around people with guns and stuff. Yeah, it's like and they the, wait until the least opportune moment when Frank. Ha- sorry, the two when, gunmen are genuinely mesmerized yeah, by his performance. Yeah, there, is, there is a sense that they're ready to kill Tony. Just before this guy steps out, and they're like, "No, no, wait! I want to see where this goes. I want to they're, see." Where this and goes. they look at each other and like, "Did you know this was going to be?" No, I'm looking at the program here, and yeah. it doesn't appear to be listed anywhere. I, I think, I think we should stick with this because they wait until the moment where Tony is hiding behind this giant man with a stuffed pillow <laughs> under his shirt, at which point to open fire with the machine guns. Yeah, if which, if we if we shoot through this guy, it might silence it. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's the logic that they're using. Yeah, yeah. It'll just muffle the gunshots by shooting through this enormously fat guy. Yeah. Um, it's a foolproof plan. Yeah, Nobody but they else. don't realize that fat is bulletproof. 
So, Apparently, yeah. so it won't go through this person and into Tony Montana, yeah. no matter how many times they shoot him. Look, luckily, um, luckily, all the performers um, at this establishment wear Kevlar fat suits. Yeah. Um, it was a policy implemented by the old management, controversial though it might have been, but it seems that they made the right call. Tony gets shot a lot in this movie. Um, he does, but again, he's powered by cocaine, so it's okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, when you talk about remakes, uh, one of the more interesting are remakes and reboots and sort of like uh, director's cuts. There is no director's cut of this film. There is the version that he released that was, that he snuck in under the R rating as the X rated cut. And that's, I think, still in circulation um, because obviously standards have changed since then. They've become a bit more lax. But there's also... The, I don't know if they have. <laughs> there's also the fact that um, just because you don't get to see more RoboCop-like model work, Andrew, doesn't mean that, you know... There, so, there's less boobies in movies these days, aren't there? There are, actually. There are. Yeah. There's, there's something there, there for older time... brothers in this movie. Um, <laughs> there, yeah. Something there, for creepy, possessive <laughs> older brothers in this movie. There, there, there was a time in the 90s where there was, like, tons of um, uh, erotic trailers. And then... Striptease and, and showgirls come to mind. Like, yeah. That was, that, like, was, that was the genre sort of, like, Armageddon even, deep even impact stuff moment. like the quick and the dead you're like oh sharon stone is in this but it's a straightforward kind of western but also she's got to have sex at some point um yeah i like that sharon stone is a genre onto herself in yeah because i mean it's like if she's in anything she's in sliver and... oh, and... oh, the disclosure was demi moore wasn't it yeah so demi demi moore was carving out um like her own kind of sharon stone sort, sort of, of sub-genre thing going yeah. on where are the where are the new Sharon Stone or Demi Moore's? I I I I genuinely thought that Amanda Seyfried was was going to fulfill that function, and then there was going to be a whole raft of um, erotic Amanda Seyfried movies, but that hasn't happened. And what was your basis for this? What was your erotic Amanda wasn't, Seyfried? Wasn't she in a couple of movies where um, there was one where Julianne Moore and oh, her. Okay. Um, there was, um, where where Julianne Moore is the wife who's hiring Amanda Seyfried oh, yes, to seduce that. who is it Liam Neeson? I think maybe Liam Neeson. Um, uh, I hadn't seen that movie. But I, then I that, have... that movie got overtaken by the Liam Neeson subgenre. Um... <laughs> the there there's also an Amanda Seyfried movie where she plays uh, the woman from Deep Throat. Uh, oh, Lovelace. 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 Yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that's I, not really an erotic thriller so much as a, no. as a depressing biopic. But anyway, no. But anyway, so we're talking about possible remakes of uh, sorry. And, and, and sort of you just sort of look into my mind. So Andrew, <laughs> you, you want more mainstream movies that look at in a, economic inequality and also have boobies in them? Yes, this is what Andrew wants from modern cinema. Yeah, but um, actually, one of the things is when they were re-releasing Scarface in two thousand and three. Uh, Universal approached Brian De Palma about possibly replacing the movie's iconic 80s soundtrack with rap songs that had been inspired by Scarface. Because Scarface is hugely popular. We talked at the start about how it's hugely popular among a certain segment of like dude bros who are aged sort of like 30 now, who would have came of age with it, where you have posters in the dorms. But it's also hugely There's nothing wrong with that because people are like 20, um, 19, 18-year-old young men. Like, they... I've recently like flicked through um posters in like those poster places and it's yeah. like oh all posters are for people of a certain age yeah there's nothing in here for me yeah um where's vertigo damn it where's yeah the classic th- soul bass designs thank you very much yeah you have to kind of go looking for them yeah. um 
as opposed to the scarf, which is an iconic poster, to be fair. Well, to like, po- po- I guess posters are a very sort of, um, yeah, anyway, sorry. Go on. No, no, but I was saying, like, apparently it's hugely influential for rappers. Like, I mean, Snoop Dogg has described it as a how-to guide for rappers. Uh, Sean Combs has said that you can watch it almost as, like, a self-help book if you want you to give, establish a brand. You give Snoop Dogg his, um, his stage name, but... I, actually, hold on, wait, you might be right. Does Sean Combs now go by Sean Combs? Well, the thing is, the question is, like, which stage name would you use for Sean Combs? P. Diddy, Puff Daddy? Hmm. I mean, there are so many to choose from. Snoop Dogg at least P. has Diddy the consistency. Pop. Yeah, at least has the consistency of a single name. Oh, he was Snoop Doggy Dog. Was he? Okay, yeah, but... And he's also known as Snoop. Um, also known... I like that. Also known as Snoop, casually to his acquaintances. Um, Snizz Diggy... Um, but he was, but he was never one instead of the other, right? Snooze dizzy gog. Like if you would always refer to him as Snoop Dogg and know who you were talking to, right? Um, or who you were talking about? No, I think he would, he would, he would, he would give you the, he would, he would slap you down and say right. it's Snoop to you. But apparently, Stephen Bauer realized that the film had been critically reassessed when he watched Cribs, and he discovered that the p- films, posters, and DVDs were inside all these houses of these famous rappers in the late 90s and early 2000s. Ah. And, like, apparently, like, obviously, uh, many of the lines have been sampled and there have been many sort of... Like, there's a rapper named Scarface, for example. Various other people have quoted the movie in their lyrics and stuff. And apparently Universal approached Brian De Palma about stripping out the 80s theme music and basically just replacing it with rap songs that had been written inspired by the film itself. Apparently De Palma's response was a big, polite nope. Right. Uh, as one might expect. Yeah, yeah, you'd, um, how much coke <laughs> was involved in that pitch meeting? What imagines, but I mean, it does seem like the, this is the kind of logic that gets you, let's remake Scarface. It's like, Scarface is popular, can we think of a way to market it to young people? Like, to market it to even more young people. It's like, kids like rap music, right? I, I, can we possibly replace the soundtrack with rap just music? Just release Scarface again. Just like, putting in cinemas. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, re-releases tend to do, they, they do quite well. For example, obviously, Terminator 2 did quite well, the 3D re-release, for example. Yeah. The Lion King re-release did fairly well recently. I think Beauty and the Beast did reasonably well recently as well. Like, even Titanic did very well internationally as a, as a re-release. So it's not unheard of for re-releases to do well without too much tinkering or ending. Right. So I think, I think it is entirely possible to do that and to get away with that. Yeah. Apparently Michelle Pfeiffer is a little um, uncomfortable talking about the film. Apparently she's not overly fond. I don't know whether it's of her performance or of the film itself. She's talked about how she was frequently terrified while making the film because she felt sort of like there was a lot of... She was not the first choice for the role in question uh, on the part of De Palma. De Palma originally wanted Nancy Allen from Blowout, but the studio vetoed him after Blowout failed financially. Um, and so she felt sort of unwelcome and she felt a little sort of and there was, she felt like it was a very masculine as you might imagine set given Al Pacino's performance that there was a lot of machismo in the air and stuff and she felt sort of uh, said that she would feel uncomfortable and also because at the time she was in order to play a character with a cocaine addiction she was starving herself um, so as she said she didn't feel so much satisfied when the film was over as hungry I believe is her exact quote um, but I think she's she's very good in this, actually. I think Michelle Pfeiffer is fantastic. This would have been her big breakout She didn't have to starve herself that much. No, it's not as if for, Michelle Pfeiffer... To, yeah. to, to be believable as a cook. It, it's like... <laughs> so, uh, Michelle, as, as your acting coach, I think it's important for you to look like the skinniest person ever um, when when you're pretending to be a, a, a cocaine addict. 
So you'll not so much need to lose weight as to lose all the weight. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The, 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 uh, well, she does actually, if you notice, she does, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but she seemed thinner towards the end of the film as her cocaine addiction became more obvious and more apparent. I don't know. Maybe that's just an effect. Pretty, 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 pretty thin, thin throughout. Not, not that like, I'm policing her body yeah, or anything, no. but it, 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 it was like extremely thin throughout. Yeah. And for, throughout her career as well. Like it's, yeah, it's not as if Michelle Pfeiffer has ever been anything but skinny. Um, but yeah, it just sort of, I don't know, it, it did, she did strike me, she did seem like she was thinner at the end of the film, and it did seem like, it's not, it wasn't as obvious a method transformation as, say, Daniel Day-Lewis, or, or even, say, uh, Robert De Niro, for example, for, for Raging yeah. Bull, but I, I did yeah, think it was noticeable. The problem can kind of be where, where you have people watching the movie, and it's like, oh, look how fantastic she looks, um, <laughs> I, 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 I want to look like that. Yeah. And but that, I mean, that, that there isn't really a healthy way to 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 sort of look like that. But I mean, the same argument could be like made towards the male role model in the film as well. To be fair, look at how successful and rich he is. I want to be that successful and rich. There's no real healthy way to be that successful and rich either. Well, uh, we, we were talking earlier about the nutritional value of <laughs> cocaine, powered by cocaine and rage. Yeah, we've. We'd, I I'm sure. I'm sure if people had, uh, like, it's funny. We we have we have these. We're 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 addicted to poison. There there's 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 all of these um, words that end in i n e, that are um, these poisons found in plants like co- cocaine and nicotine Morphine. and heroin yeah. and opium. Um, well, opium doesn't end in i n e, but you get the point. Yeah, the um, and and they're all they're all poisons that we're addicted to and some of them are legal and some of them are not and some of them might become legal and some of them might become illegal yeah it's 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 this strange strange kind of a thing i'm sure there's an alternate universe where everybody has likes things like, that are good for them yeah where they, where they have a small little kind of uh, splenda um amount of cocaine <laughs> <laughs> and it's just perfectly proportioned yeah all right, well, with that in mind, then, I think the only thing left to do I is... I never take cocaine after 6 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it, it I feel jittery. Yeah, it doesn't let, it doesn't help yeah. me sleep. So with that in mind, then, I think the only thing left to do is to pick the movie uh, for next week. So with that in mind, Andrew, I'll ask you to press the random number generator. And it's number 72. I have a sneaking suspicion. I have a feeling we may have already... <laughs> la- we may have done Stupid this random number generator. Quite recently. No, no, no we haven't. No. The, the, um, we were thinking of number 71, which was Dan Geld. Number 72, which we'll be covering the, next time on the 250, is... Martin Landau and George A. Romero's... Um, first film, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, North by which, Northwest, directed which is by great, Alfred Because we were going to do that at the time of their passing. We were indeed. We were considering doing this as a special tribute episode at the time of their passing, but we decided against it. So this is actually this is very very nice. I'm yeah. very much looking forward. Alfred to Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the trailer. I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. 
And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. Cary Grant becomes a secret agent against his will. Propelled at gunpoint onto the highest level of international intrigue and framed for murder. Cary Grant, running for his life, searching for a man who doesn't exist, and a secret nobody knows, and finding a blonde who has all the answers. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? At breakneck speed, they race together toward the excitement that lies dead ahead, north by northwest. How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Cary Grant, Eva Marie Saint, and James Mason as the man of sinister surprises. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. The perfect setup for suspense. With the perfect woman and the perfect crime, as Alfred Hitchcock takes you north by northwest. So yeah, you should see this movie in the magnitude of this division, which I believe is Paramount's answer to CinemaScope. Yeah, and there's a blonde in it. Just in case you didn't get that. And Some every sight and sound you see is real yeah, as well. So none of, that, none of that 60s CGI stuff. So this wasn't one of those ones where it's like, hello, my name is Alfred Hitchcock. I don't want to spoil the movie, so I'm going to take you on a tour of the shirt. This is the most... <laughs> why, does he sound, why does he sound like Lurch? Um, or, like he should be answering the door for the Adams family. It's like... Um... Yes, Mr. Adams. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, our bad Alfred Hitchcock impersonations notwithstanding. Uh, you, no. can, <laughs> you can hear us talk about North by Northwest uh, in, a, in a fortnight or so. Uh, in the meantime, Andrew, where can we find you? Um, out and about. Like, just kind of... Um, if you look for me... If you can see Andrew, he can see you. If you can't see Andrew, you're only moments from death. Yeah, that's true. I'm I'm, I'm mostly murdering people <laughs> these days. Um, so yeah, look out for that. Uh, you can also find him on Twitter at A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A. Excellent. Perfect. Yeah. Um, you can follow I'll be, me... I'll be liking and retweeting um, stuff on the <laughs> 250. <laughs> follow that too it is pretty much a copy account yeah you can follow the 250 at at the 250 um spelt using actual letters which is so passe of us and you can follow me at darren underscore mooney you can read my reviews at the movie blog and i actually have a book that is physically out at the moment it exists in print darren mooney has a book yep it's opening the x-files a critical history of the original show i promised i'm 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 reviewing this yeah so you should like me (laughs) <laughs> um, review this this uh, this book with uh, five stars because I believe it's a five star book. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, and he's not just saying that because I'm glaring at him with angry eyes. <laughs> um, no, it is. It's, it's available uh, online. Uh, obviously, if you do like it, feel free to give it a very positive review on Amazon because those help get it in front of people and, and obviously help sell a bit. And if you if this one sells, then there's obviously the possibility of doing more and possibly doing something movie related actually, which I, I would love to do. Uh, but anyway, you can find that online, um, and you can follow us here. But uh, in the meantime... I'll sue you for everything. <laughs> you write a, a book movie. 
of the, of the movie if book. If I write a book movie. A book movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Judge will be like, well... You've seen the trailer for The Social Network. That, this, just got, this just went very, very trailer for The Social Network. Yeah. I will sue you in federal court. They're those two twins. <laughs> yeah, the Winkle Bosses. Yeah, they're going to go after Army Hammers, yeah. <laughs> they had the <laughs> idea of writing. Yeah. Um, um, Army Hammer is somehow not a tool in use by the U.S. military. Yeah. The, the, no, it's one of those um, uh, American military railroads. Um, uh, carriages in in the general was full of army hammers. Yeah, um, and there is an image that we will leave you on. So with that in mind, take care, guys, and we'll see you soon. Bye.